Hello and welcome to Cinda Podcast, the Independent Film Festival's podcast about film and independent filmmaking, with a particular focus on smaller markets like the city of Cincinnati, where Cindependent is based. My name is Johnny Shank. I'm a curator here with the festival. Coming up on the show today, we have a conversation with Jonathan McNeil. He is, among other things, the longtime manager of the Neon Art House Movie Theater in Dayton, Ohio. And Jonathan and the Neon have been through a lot in the last two decades. They've seen a lot of changes in the movie theater industry. And we get into all those details. Um, most recently, of course, um, they've been finding their way through the pandemic, just like all the rest of us have. Um, so it was a pleasure talking with Jonathan and looking forward to sharing that conversation. But joining us now, I'm very excited to have another Syndependent Film Festival curator. He's a writer. Uh, he does a lot of great work here in Cincinnati. He's a man of the people. You know him. You love him. Evan Holt. Thanks for coming on the show, Evan. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. And thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Love to hear it. So to jump into it, we're about two weeks out from the Oscars now, and it feels like the Oscars are a good way to kind of delineate the end of one movie year and then jump into the next movie year, kind of pass the torch from 2022 to 2023. So okay. what we thought we'd do is uh, um, kind of compare notes on uh, the films from last year and then kind of look ahead on the, the schedule this year. Um, before we get into our list, though, Evan, any any feelings, any hot takes you had simmering about the Oscars? <laughs> I'm in a camp where I admittedly don't really put a whole lot of stock in what the Oscar voters believe. Um, I really just don't think, by and large, that the Oscars are really indicative of the best works of the year. Of the year. They get it right maybe about half the time, but mm -hmm. there's just so much politics involved that it really takes a shine off what would be considered a true representation of what people would determine would be the best, you know, performances, the best artistic, you know, expressions, you know. Mm. Uh, that said, though, whatever someone that I'm a big fan of happens to get an Oscar, then I care. Right. <laughs> then, I'm right. then it's interested. legit. Then it's right. So yeah. when Sam Rockwell yeah. got one, when when Gary Oldman got one, uh, when when Jordan Peele became the first uh, black screenwriter in a best original screenplay, then I care. Then I'm very like, yeah, you know, that's, yeah, that's, that's my right. people. Uh, but otherwise, I, I really don't put a whole lot of stock in it, you know. Um, I still watch though. <laughs> like if I'm not working, I do end up watching half the time. I was thinking with your thing about, yeah, sort of the, the politics of it. I think, you know, like an analogy with the Oscars <laughs> to me sometimes reminds me of politics themselves where you never really expect the person you're really, you know, if there's somebody you really like, you don't mm -hmm. really expect them to win. Mm -hmm. And then when they do win, like, I feel like in the case of everything everywhere all at once, it almost made you sort of like take a second look at it and be like, wait, did I like, is it as good as I thought it was? Or like the Oscars almost put like a heavier spotlight or a heavier weight on a sure. movie like that, that on its own is just a really fun, great time at the movies. Sure. Sure. Well, I mean, I know I'd be, be jumping ahead in terms of like uh, what we thought of the best of the year, but everything yeah. was my favorite of the year. I knew it the minute I saw it. I, I can't say I was like patient zero. I didn't see it for the first couple of uh, weeks it was out, but I finally did see it. And as you mentioned, I've done writing. I've been screenwriting since about 15 or so. And mm -hmm. for me to come out of a film and have no notes, <laughs> like the first time I came out, I had no notes. I had nothing uh, to critique, really. You know, if I did, it'd be nitpicky. You know, yeah. I was really just in thought. I really just loved it, like top to bottom. Um, and it was just so yeah. rare. It was about so much. And aside from what it was about, even again, going back into representation, because um, I've always been hugely critical of Asian American representation in films. Um, mm -hmm. You could have actors who've been like like James Hong, you know, James Hong, uh, who plays the grandfather in that film. He's got right. over 400 film credits. Right. And the overwhelming majority of those credits, he's speaking with a Chinese accent, you know, or in broken English. And this mm -hmm. band was born in uh, Minnesota, <laughs> you know, like and that's the case with Asian American actors. They often their first few roles or a lot of their career will be kind of um, assinating to these kind of tropes and cliche stereotypes. Um, it's very rare for us to have a fully evolved, fully formed um, Asian American character that doesn't defer those tropes. So have this film that is this huge spanning, you know, um, action adventure, sci-fi epic, 
and have the lead of it be not only a woman, but a 60 year old woman and an Asian, uh, uh, Malaysian American woman uh, is huge. It's a huge representation. So yeah. that was already a big deal to me before I even decide I love the film. <laughs> you know, that was like a impactful in and of itself. Okay. So we, it sounds like we've established that um, everything everywhere is on both of our lists. For me, it's number yeah. two. Was, it, was right. that your number one? Um, yeah, that's my number one. Uh, film between 22. What was your number two? Well, so my number three, so I, I had everything everywhere in number two. Mm. My number three was The Northman. Okay. So The Northman, okay. Robert Eggers, third mm. film, also mm. made The Witch and The Lighthouse, which were both right. with A24. This one was, I think, um, I can't remember. It was a slightly bigger studio, mm. bigger budget. Didn't necessarily make its money back. And I yeah, guess that release there. Um they uh didn't do great for that. Yeah, I think there was some issues with the marketing. I mean, I really loved Eggers' first few movies, mm. and I was expecting something a little, you know, more interesting than what how the trailer was kind of portraying it as like this straight up revenge, sort of like pulpy mm. B movie. Um, which mm. I love those two from time to time. Sure, sure. But in really as the movie goes on, it it starts off with this mantra that he's um, Alexander Skarsgård's character is repeating to himself without, throughout the film. This, I will avenge you, father. I will save you, mother. I will kill you, Fjolnir. Right. right. Has a great ring to it. So he's right. on this this quest, and you think it's just going to be this, like, kill Bill, what a, you know, like, kill mm-hmm. Fjolnir kind of story. Yeah, yeah, he's just yeah. checking everybody off the list and going. But as it goes deeper, the reality that he finds himself in in his quest for revenge gets a lot messier and more complicated. And I would guess that, for one, I don't think it was marketed correctly. And then maybe people were just like, what's going on? What is he doing in this village for like an hour in the last third of this Mm. movie? And Mm. like, what happened to our like Viking bloody epic, Mm. you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But I thought I was really impressed. One with the filmmaking, um, Eggers like shot it on film. He like went to Northern Ireland, um, was, you know, lugging these cameras and doing these tracking shots all over Mm. rough terrain. Mm. And then I thought in the end it it's like pitched as this like male power fantasy almost, but then by the end it kind of subverts and shows like the hollowness of uh, of that kind of like mm-hmm. agro masculine energy. So you know, sure. there's a lot in there that I, I appreciated. Um, mm-hmm. So let's. What was your number three? So it's going to seem a little pedestrian, but I really don't care. Let's do um, it. I, I don't care. Um, it's the Batman. I don't care. Let's don't go. Care. That was that was just and, off my list. That was just yeah, off my yeah. list. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and I'll, I can I can defend it for a lot of reasons. Um, I obviously I'm low key a child. I'm still into Batman, is the way it is. But for me, it's like I love film noir detective stories, and actually have a Batman story be a film noir detective story. He is the world's greatest detective. So having that kind yeah. of point of view where he's narrating, where he's like you know, and people who came in expecting like a more conventional action film were disappointed. And I was like, sorry, but this is how a film noir film works. It's a lot of talking. Yeah, <laughs> first you go talk to this guy. You go talk to this guy. <laughs> you go talk to this guy. You got to double back because this guy lied to you. So you got to go talk to this guy again. You know, that's really what a mm-hmm. uh, film off film is. And it checked off those boxes. But I felt I got a little validation actually around the time the Oscar came out because uh, cinematographer Roger Deakins was asked mm-hmm. what he believes uh, who had the best cinematography of the year. And he said, Well, I felt the best film wasn't nominated. And they asked him what it was. Wow. And he said it was the Batman. He said it was the Batman. <laughs> like, if Roger Deakins is like, bruh, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I think. Everyone should give that a second uh, watch, and I actually have. I've yeah. done it like three times now, which I was going to do anyway. I tend to do that with Batman films, and it's been a while since we've gotten a good depiction. I didn't care for any of the Batfleck, you know, stuff or whatever. And I think it's going to come up for me later on, so that's fun. Right, right, right. right. Uh, yeah. But I'm also a sucker for what I call affirmative action casting. Where you take nice. a role uh, otherwise played by a white person, you go, this could be a black person. Like, of course it could. Of course, the one not crooked cop in Gotham would be black. Come on. <laughs> That's the obvious thing. Of course. <laughs> and, uh, you know, black uh, cat woman, we already had that before. We're just circling back around to it. So I'm, I'm a sucker for stuff like that. I can't help it. It's unfortunate. That's how they, they kind of get me a couple of times with that, where it's like, oh, look, we've asked some diversity in this. Like, ah. Fuck, here I go. And it ends up not being good. But in this case, it actually, I did thoroughly enjoy it. Dialogue could have used some work. Um, mm-hmm. But overall, I, I was very thoroughly engaged. And for those who haven't seen um, Barry Cogan's deleted scene uh, playing like a proto Joker, mm-hmm. that scene also was fantastic and really is indicative of why Barry Cogan's absolutely the future. 
that guy is brings such a weird energy to everything he does. <laughs> um, Banshees of Inisherin wasn't in my list. I thought he was yeah. he was my favorite part of it though, and uh-huh. he he was also my favorite part of like the Killing of a Sacred Deer, the, mm. the Cincinnati mm. filmed movie yeah. several years ago. He's just like twitchy and like has this sort of like far off look in his eye that's like slightly menacing and yeah. Right. So it's if you're gonna like take a new spin on the Joker, I mean big shoes right. to fill, but you could you could go you can go worse. And trust me, I'm I'm a huge fan of the Joker. I could have round off ten other actors I could have thought was better for that role. But same kind of thing with Heath Ledger. He was never on my radar when that happened before and look what he did. Yeah, I just realized that, yeah, Colin Farrell and Barry Keegan were both in that movie. Both in there, yeah, yeah. And both in Banshees, yeah. And right. Banshees, yeah. which, I mean, if we're going to kind of go ahead and round it out there, Banshees is my uh, number uh, uh, two. Um, oh, good. Okay, let's go into that, because we just did yeah. my number two. Yeah. yeah. Everything Everywhere was my number two, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so everything was number one. Uh, Banshees is my number two. Batman three. Banshees again. It, it seems kind of obvious because it basically got a lot of love. It kind of was a slow roll. Um, Although it did not win a single Oscar. It didn't win a single Oscar. Yeah. But again, yeah. I don't feel bad because everyone right. who was nominated, with the exception of um, I am so bad at names these days. It's really terrible. Are we talking about Carrie Condon? Carrie Condon. Oh, not Carrie Condon. Yeah, Carrie Condon. Yeah. Everyone else who was nominated, Gary Condon and Barry uh, were the only ones who were nominated. Everyone else who had been nominated had either won before or had been very accomplished. Where I just didn't really feel bad. True. You know, for, you know, because again, I was a big Martin McDonough fan. He's already got an Oscar. You know, it's it's fine. It's okay if he doesn't win one, you know. Did but I'm still going to always see his films, you know. He won screenplay for three billboards. Is that right? Oh, he did. He did. Right. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Oh, so yeah, he's got one in the back. He's fine. He'll be okay. Um, but I was surprised they didn't win anything because yeah, I also was a film that I thoroughly really enjoyed. Did you find yourself siding more with one or the other between Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell in the movie? Um, I mean, out? you see both sides of it because yeah. like, and I can relate because I recently had to um, relieve myself from an unfulfilling uh, friendship recently. Um, and I was recently and, relieved from no, just, yeah, 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 yeah. I feel I like you like, you experience both sides of it, right? Right, actually, because again, it's like yeah. on one hand, it's like, yo, hey, if I ask you to leave me alone, just leave me alone, like please, it's not have to be that complicated. I don't need to hear your explanations or why you don't feel this is fair or any of that. Yeah, if you like me, respect me, you'll leave me alone. At the same time, it's like. What have I done to not make you like me? I'm a very likable person. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like everybody else likes me. Why don't you like me? Like, please give me a reason. I don't I'm okay if you don't want to be my friend anymore, but just give me a reason. And he just can't even quite for a while. And he has his whole, you know, perverse justification before he finally gets around to it. But yeah, I think we saw both sides of it. Um, yeah. All right. So that brings us to we have on your side the Batman, Vanchies of Inishiran, mm-hmm. and Everything Everywhere All at Once. On my side, we had The Northman, Everything Everywhere All at Once, and my number one film of the year, to my great surprise, was Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans. Is that so? Yeah. I, uh, going into it, I, I can't, I haven't really emotionally connected that much or had any real strong reactions to Steven Spielberg movies in general. I would say I respect him greatly. And like, Minority Report is a sweet movie. I love it. That's like one of my, favorite sci-fi films Mm -hmm. but going into fablemans i just thought it was sort of like oh i should see this it's gonna win oscars which then also didn't end up winning anything either which is kind of surprising (laughs) uh also what does that tell you about the culture of the oscars where it's like oh i should see this because it's coming into oscar like not because anyone you personally told you is a great amazing film it's because well it's probably gonna win some oscars it's like that's indicative of a bad That's culture. A, well, that might be a me problem, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I can put it on myself. I just want I just wanted to be up on the up on the sure. buds, you know. Sure, sure. No, I uh, and I knew there was some like interesting casting decisions, like Seth Rogen playing like the friend of the family, and um, Paul Dano well, Seth playing Rogen like really been flexing his acting chops the last few years. It's like I can't act. Yeah. I've got really. I've got you know. Got a coach. <laughs> I'm really trying to act now, you know. And I'm here for it. I mean, it's yeah, he was great. Uh, Steve Jobs was a movie. He was mm-hmm. kind of flexed his chops, and I think he played Steve Wozniak mm-hmm. that movie yeah. like five years yeah. ago. Yeah. Maybe don't have time to get all the way into Seth Rogen. <laughs> sure, uh, sure, sure. I respect. But yeah, but you're saying you really uh, you, you, uh, had a emotional. Re- the first time you've had an emotional 
uh, response or reaction to a Steven Spielberg's film. Uh, yeah. Was saying, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's the only movie where I, I decided to call my mom afterwards. So that puts, a, <laughs> that puts it in its own category. Uh, but yeah, it seemed again, like it was kind of pitched as like, uh, oh, like childlike wonder of the movies and like watch as Steven Spielberg discovers a camera and, mm-hmm. you know, creates magic, you know, mm-hmm. but what it ended up being from a, a narrative perspective and from like a thematic angle was Spielberg basically trying to tell us that like movies are manipulation and lies and it's it's throughout the film it's like him using a camera to like take control of a situation mm-hmm. whether it be like a fear this like kind of nightmare he had when he was a kid mm-hmm. and then his parents divorce and then a bullying situation and in each case he's like using the camera to be like i now control this and i can like choose what if i can frame it and make the narrative work strong enough Mm-hmm. then I will like control reality in a way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I didn't, um, I didn't see that coming. And even all the way up to like the last sure. shot of the film, they have like a little kind of throwaway joke with, at the end of the movie, he meets like a uh, famous director from that era. John, mm-hmm. Well, John Ford. I don't know if that's, right. that's a spoiler. the spoiler is kind of like who plays John Ford. Um, sure, which is sure, really fun. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, but then they do a thing about like, camera like it ends with kind of a joke about like how to frame a shot um but really that's sort of like a comedic ending to like a really deep Mm. theme Mm. that he put Mm. throughout the film oh and this is where you mentioned uh batman and and ben affleck Mm -hmm. um i was thinking of so i have a love in my heart for for zach snyder and um (laughs) that whole world i i don't know the guy has the guy guy, (laughs) <laughs> for something um but there's a, a line in the famous batman versus superman um, famous miles mayberry uh where ben affleck's batman says i i wanted to you know zach snyder steven spielberg you know we're uh, talking about the greats here um <laughs> uh, ben, so but ben, ben, the batfleck says um the world only makes sense if you force it to as he's like beating up mm. superman and trying to like mm. take control of mm. his situation mm. And I, that's kind of like the thesis statement of the Fablemans, like the world mm, only makes sense mm. if you force it to. And I, mm. it, it's an artistic vision that, you know, surprised me and, and that I ended up really, you know, mm. engaging with. So um, should we speed run our, our anticipated yeah. films of 2023 here? Sure, sure. Um, um, do you so want to start with your, um, you should go back and forth and just kind of roll through them here? Uh, yes, go back and forth. Uh, cool. I'll do three, do three, two, two, one, one. Sounds good. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so my number three is actually a, a toss up. Uh, nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, neither of them have an official release date. One of them, I'm not even sure it's going to happen. So I had to split the two. So one of them is the untitled Charlie Day directorial debut, um, which oh, I think yeah. is in the can, I think. And I think they're still working on it or whatever. Um, but very excited. Charlie Day has been, you know, a great writer for his TV for years. He's also a very competent actor. Like I'm very eager to see what he does more on screen. Um, I think he's going to be the lead of character of the film. And I heard somebody is what it might be about, but I don't want to misspeak or misquote whatever. But I'm very eager to see what he does there. Split for number three also for me would be uh, mm-hmm. David Venture's newest The Killer, which is with him oh, reteaming yeah. with Andrew Kevin Walker of Seven Fame, and it's going to star uh, Michael Fassbender and Tilda Swinton. It's Apparently based on a graphic novel, um, but with Andrew Kevin Walker's involvement, I'm sure it's going to be some heavy, gnarly shit, and I'm very excited to see them teaming back together again. Um, being able to actually do their yeah. own thing, because when they did Seven before, they had to lie to the studio to get the ending they wanted, but now they're like hot shit, and they can't do whatever they want, so I'm very eager to see what they do with that kind of freedom. Uh, how about uh, you? What's your number three? Okay, so my number three is a film called Bo is Afraid. Uh, ah, yeah, originally, that too, yeah. Yeah, uh, I think its original title was Disappointments Boulevard. Um, okay. It's the third film from Ari Aster, who right. directed uh, Midsummer and Hereditary before this, which yeah. were yes. pretty much uh, horror or horror-adjacent films. Yes. Um, this is more pitched as like a dark comedy, more of, um, I've heard people compare it to like Charlie Kaufman, Sure. Style sure. of existential type of film. 
Um, all I know from the posters that you see walking Phoenix at like four different ages in his life. Right. I'm really going to watch a trailer. What's up? I haven't seen the trailer yet. I'm kind of want to go in cold. Um, Yeah, same. But I have a feeling that it'll probably be a good a companion piece. You can do a double feature of that as Connecticut, New York, and probably want to die. <laughs> that's what I'm. That's so I'm here for my going to be a perfect though. evening for me. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm here for it though, no question. Yeah. Um, so, what's your number two? Number two uh, is going to be across the Spider Verse. Let's um, go. I really, really enjoyed in Spider Verse, and I say as someone who doesn't really watch a lot of animated films. I watch animated sitcoms, like comedies, you know, but I really don't go for a lot of animated films. But that year uh, was Game Busters, because it opened with, that year had Black Panther in, in the beginning of the year, and it ended with Spider-Verse. If you were a black kid in America, that was a Game Busters year. You got to see some yeah. actual black representation and, you know, you know, Marvel films. And it's just a cute movie. I thought the animation was great. You know, it's just a very fun movie, very well cast. And now next one's going to have an even more stacked cast and kind of go deeper. And I'm I need to have, have a good balance of like I love my gritty, dark, gnarly stuff or whatever. But I need a good balance of wholesome content, mm-hmm. and that's like uh, and that's what you know uh, everything ever fell in that kind of camp as well. Even though it was kind of heavy emotionally, it was still kind of wholesome content, and that's what I would defer right. to with this. Where it's like I need a little something a little lighter that I'm excited to see. Kind of like you know, I think about the terrors of the world and just you know, you know, be a kid and kind of enjoy the go for the ride. Yeah. I feel like that one would be really fun. Like I didn't get to see the first one on the big screen, but everybody told mm-hmm. me like you gotta see it on the big screen. Mm-hmm. All the sort of like visual styles and yeah, I miss it in yeah. theaters too, uh, and I regret that. So now I'm never gonna make up make up for that by seeing the second one. All right, so number two for me, I have what's sure to be an iconic film for decades to come: Greta Gerwig's Barbie. Let's okay. go. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> it's um. It's already, it's sort of starting to roll out its press tour. It had its first trailer recently, which was like an homage to 2001 A Space Odyssey. Um, It's coming out the same day as Oppenheimer uh, with the Christopher Nolan movie, which was also not in my top three, but it's definitely a movie I'm curious to see. Um, I I think there's going to be like a war between Oppenheimer and Barbie this (laughs) summer. And I'm going to be on, I'm I'm fighting for, I'm on the Barbie team. Let's put it that way. I don't think Oppenheimer stands a chance. It's a a tough go because the same people who would, you know, people been wanting to see Barbie, everybody wants to want to watch Killian Murphy just smolder on screen for three hours. I'm sure it's just going to be Killian Murphy just standing on screen and smoking a cigarette. For three straight hours. I'm pretty sure that's what Oppenheimer's going to be. It might be, there be, might be an explosion, but I think it's mostly just going to be Killian smoldering. Well, isn't it also going to be like, does Christopher Nolan actually blow, like, detonate a nuclear bomb? <laughs> 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 it has to be honestly, real. Honestly, he flips the truck in Dark Knight. Happened, yeah. If that happened and we all died, I would have a good chuckle before the bomb, you know, came for me, but... That be, there are worse ways to go. We were looking at Putin, but it was actually Nolan. <laughs> it was Nolan the whole damn time. Like, you know, should have known it would have yeah. been a Brit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but so Barbie, um, just let's see, just a couple notes on it for me that I'm excited about. I do, Greta Gerwig um, made mm-hmm. uh, Little Women and Lady Bird as her first mm-hmm. two directorial efforts. I love both of those movies. I think she's a really interesting new young director, kind of like in the class with. Jordan Peele and mm. uh, Chloe Zhao, uh, Ryan Coogler, mm. um, who are sort of like the new, uh, hopefully like the new generation that'll be making great movies for decades. Right. Um, so, you know, I have no idea what to expect, uh, mm. but I know they're going to go big with it. And uh, Yeah, I, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. But again, I'm here for <laughs> trying things. Cause, like, I hate seeing a trailer where it's like, I know exactly what it's about without even having to. And it's not a case where sometimes it can be misdirection. She uses like, I know exactly what this is. And I do not care. You know, with this case, it's like, I have no idea what I'm getting into. I'm excited to find out, you know, more of that these days. I'd love to see. Yeah. Okay. We're up to number one. Number one. All right. Uh, number one uh, for me, is going to be Killers of the Flower Moon, assuming it comes out. <laughs> next right. Year. Right. That's the question. Yeah. Says he's editing it. Um, he's editing it now. Apparently he's been editing it for a couple of months now. Um, yeah, Ian Scorsese is going to be number one for me. Like, I'm pulling up. Like, that's a, you know, he's in the same category as Spielberg, but I put him above that because he's shown a bit more range, I think, in terms of his ability to do things. And this is a, it's a yeah. visceral filmmaker, you know. Um, yeah. And one of my favorite movies, probably of the last decade, is Silence, which is another right, yeah, really phenomenal. reflective, meditative movie. 
Right. But I'm like, right. I will go on the journey with you. Yeah. Mr. Right. Scorsese. Right. Yeah. And again, I haven't seen it since, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. Like I said, saw it in theater, let it wash over me, like great performances, like some things I've never seen before, you know. Um, very personal movie, you know, about faith, you know. Um, which I found out an interesting subject where it's like uh as far as religion goes, and his yeah. the messaging behind it behind it being basically like that your faith should be personal, like no one should really be proselytizing to anybody. And I believe that. Yeah. Like, you know, I really do. Whatever it is you believe, like, that's cool. But to make you start trying to proselytize and tell, oh, you need to believe this too or you're going to die or whatever. Like, no, just sh- shut up. Stop talking. Like, carry it with you. If you feel like you're right, know that you're right. And just hold that W in you and stop trying to project that <laughs> on other people. Like, fat out. Yeah. Well, that's an amazing segue, actually, into my number one most anticipated yeah. film of the year, well uh, which is another one that may or may not come out, um, okay. but it is Terrence Malick's Jesus okay. movie um, okay. called now the, I can't, it was called the lost planet at one point, And now I believe it's called the way of the wind. Uh, but it's basically Terrence Malick has been one of these, you know, he's been on a spiritual journey for a long time and I've been on the journey <laughs> with him going sure. back to like thin red line, uh, mm-hmm. tree of life. And most recently a hidden life. He's very like visual director and very like, poetic editing and not a lot of forward momentum to his movies, but they're just Mm -hmm. like pondering sort of like our place in the universe. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes literally like in tree of life where he has like a whole 20 minute sequence. It's just voyage through time, watching the creation of the universe, things like that. So this one, he's like, all right, we're just going to get real and we're going to go and, you know, have a movie about Jesus. Well, we started with, um, Everything everywhere all at once. We ended with Jesus, where every conversation <laughs> should end. Uh, <laughs> every um, conversation should end with Jesus. <laughs> what kind of podcast am I on now? What is this? <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, I got you. I tricked you. Um, no, I'm I'm happy that I got to shout out um, my other personal savior, Zack Snyder, during this. <laughs> <laughs> Are you doing this to embarrass me? Is that what this is? You're like, get me out. We're not. We're not going to release this episode. Will never be released. Oh my god! Uh, <laughs> uh, Evan, thank you for coming on um, the Cinda podcast. Uh, and now we're going to go to my conversation with Jonathan McNeil, the Neon Theater. Well, I'm happy to be joined now by Jonathan McNeil. He is the manager at the Neon Theater in Dayton. Um, it's one of the finest art house movie theaters in the Midwest. And uh, Jonathan, thanks a lot for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And thanks for that nice little shout out there. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, to, to get into it a little bit, uh, <clears throat> could you give us a little background on the neon um history of of the theater um and then also how you came to be involved uh down there sure thing so it started um as a single screen cinema in the mid 80s um and it was owned by an operating company out of cincinnati actually at the time and uh that lasted um less than a couple years i think um it changed um, owners and iterations uh, a few times before it kind of landed in what was known as the new neon movies. It was called the Dayton movies initially. Um, It became the neon then in the nineties at some point um, lasted for a while um, was never really in the black Um, at one point um, had Cinerama. So three screen or three projector, three camera, three projector presentation, um, and that lasted only for a couple years. There are still some websites out there that say that we have it. So we have uh, people calling now and again, asking, you know, if we're still showing how the West was won. Mm-hmm. But um, that stopped uh, 24-ish years ago. Um, there were only five films really made with that three-strip uh, film uh, Cinerama presentation. Then Cinerama s- uh, sold its name um, and other subsequent films like It's a Mad, 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 Mad World and even 2001. Those came out in a format that was single strand. But that's not what you're asking about. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, mm-hmm. so um, 
in 2001, they decided to um, go from single screen to twin the theater. A major renovation was done, and I was hired in the middle of that renovation to take over management. So I had a background in film and um, a background in customer service and whatnot that I was um, working in uh, retail for years while I was finishing up thesis work at Wright State. And it just mm. seemed kind of like the perfect marriage to take over um, the cinema. Yeah. At that time. Yeah. I, um, had you worked, uh, did you start on staff at the theater or did you kind of come right into management? I came right in management wise. So okay. I did, um, I was, I did a series, a film series on campus at Wright State for a few years. So I had some curatorial, um, um, experience behind me as well. Um, and then of course the film background kind of knowledge of how, how film and cinema and filmmaking works, um, you know, came along with that. And so I think that they, um, the powers that be just thought that that was a good marriage, um, of skill sets to, to bring me on as management. Yeah. Now, so if you came in in 2001, um, what, uh, do you remember what some of the big movies were? Uh, when, um, started? when I first started, the two first movies we opened with um, in that fall of uh, 2001 were um, Green Fingers with Helen Mirren and mm. The Deep End with Tilda Swinton. Um, mm. And, you know, I'm a huge Tilda fan. So that was, um, you know, a nice way to kick things off. But it took a while for uh, people to really start to support the theater. And it really wasn't until later that um, winter that we got Amelie and we were exclusive mm. on Amelie. And that's what really made us realize or made us um, kind of have more hope that the theater would be able to be self-sustaining. So that, you know, took off and became a hit for us and played right. through Valentine's day. For, so Thanksgiving to Valentine's day. Um, so uh, like a 13 week run. Uh, okay. Yeah. I remember the Amelie phenomenon um, from when I was a kid. Um, in that era, you must have been working on film. Um, that's right. Yeah. How did around when, and maybe the, this is a, I don't know if you have transitioned fully to digital. Do you still do anything with film or around? We when don't do you... anything with film. Okay. Um, what we came quick to realize was that the projection booth, you know, we, first of all, we needed to switch to digital. Uh, we got that letter from Fox searchlight, um, back in the, um, late tens that said, you know, if you don't switch, we're not going to be able to service you with new project product. Um, so, so we started investigating, making that transition to digital and we, um, it's been 10 plus years now that we switched to digital. And we knew though, that even though I kind of wanted to keep some 35 around everybody that was going anybody that would have anything worth showing archivally requires you to go reel to reel, which means you need two projectors um, to be able to do that archival 35 stuff. And that means we would need the two digital projectors upstairs and another two 35 projectors. And we just didn't have, we just don't have the footprint uh, to be able to, uh, to do that. Yeah. I think that just about every theater in, this in Ohio at least has moved fully to digital. I think maybe Gateway in Columbus has uh Gateway still has 70 as well. Yeah. They can still do 70. And so can, right. I mean, I think most theatrical places have made that switch. Um, but there are, you know, there are places that still utilize film like the, um, like the Wexner center and stuff like that do it quite regularly, um, you know, and have, pretty much every format available so they can show 16 and 35 and 70 and um, all mm-hmm. in, in addition to digital stuff. Yeah. It sounds like when you started, I'll, I'll pose the question this way. You were kind of trying to find a niche and a footprint for the neon itself and, and building its, its place in the community. While at the same time, while you were kind of trying to build that trajectory, the trajectory of the theatrical screen world in general was going the other way. So are there any times that stand out to you as sort of like, let's say like peak 
movie going times and, and then we'll get to the pandemic. But in that stretch, did you have you observed any trends of like, oh, we're moving this way and then something happened and it's coming back or, you know, you know, I, I feel like during the recession, there was a question as to, you know, a lot of the arts were in peril at that time. But cinema, you know, kept going and we we actually held our own and did did well during the recession. And I think that's because it's certainly a lot more affordable than a, you know, a Philharmonic ticket or a, you know, a seeing a Broadway show, et cetera. So, so we did fine during the recession in 2008, uh, you know, and beyond. And, you know, we were, we were really smooth sailing until the, until the pandemic. In fact, Mm -hmm. you know, 2019 had been a soft year for us but we were still in the black in 2019. 2018 had been a banner year for us. And I think that's because it was kind of bookended by, you know, a strong Oscar season going into 2018 and a strong Oscar season going into 2019. So that January, February was great. And that November, December was great. And we were even seeing success in the summer months. So those late teens actually were really pretty strong for us. And um, we were able to uh, put some money in reserves, which mm-hmm. which is part of the reason why we're still above ground now. Certainly, pandemic money and whatnot helped, um, you know, some uh, grants and things like that. But uh, we had money in our coffers, which really um, has been able to make us stay afloat because we're certainly not in the black right now. Right. Well, let's go to March of 2020. Mm-hmm. Something that we like to do on the show is just sort of go back in time to that moment and uh, walk through sort of how that experience played out. What was going on at the Neon that month? And then how did it sort of, you know, what were the developments as as the news started coming in about how serious the pandemic would be? Well, you know, two weeks to flatten the curve um, was, you know, that mantra um, was short-lived. We, our last films were Emma and uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire were our last two films before we, before we shut down. And um, we, you know, we're still having, Emma hadn't done, hadn't opened as well as I had hoped just because it seemed like kind of bread and butter material for us. Um, it did well, but didn't do great. And it was just because things were trickling in of like, you know, oh, you probably don't want to be in a tight space with people, you know, there's an illness going around, et cetera. So that word was starting to come out before we were forced to close. And we, um, you know, it was, it was a scary time, but my only way to, to deal with it was to pretty much work every day. Um, Mm -hmm. so we were closed from, March until the end of June. And we were one of the first theaters to reopen though. We'd made so many modifications to um, the interior flow of the building. We were down to about 25% capacity. We had, um, you know, had so implemented so many new cleaning practices and things like that had put in all new uh, toilets that self flush and, hmm. you know, you know, did all kinds of things so that you wouldn't have to handle anything except the opening the door on the way in. And we were washing that down every, you know, 20 minutes. So we really made it as, um, we, we took the protocols pretty seriously and, mm-hmm. um, were able to reopen then. But I, like I said, I worked every day. I went in in some capacity, whether I was cleaning something or whether I was meeting, uh, with contractors and figuring out how to build things, rebuild a box office so that flow would be, you know, that we could keep staff six feet apart. We were spending a lot more to make a lot less ultimately. Um, you know, somebody was at box office in one side of the room, somebody was taking your concession order, you know, 12 yeah. feet away, and then somebody was getting you your concession order eight feet away, you know. So um, we really, um, you know, instead of two people working most of the day, we had three people every day. So, you know, like I said, spending more to make less. Um, yeah. So uh, and working harder right, to, right. Absolutely. to keep things as safe as possible. So yeah, double right. the uh, expenses and work probably. Right. And all that PPP, um, you know, um, 
just the sanitizing costs and masks and all that. And then we spent thousands uh, within a couple months of being reopened on air air filtration machines that were um, the same ones used by the Cleveland Clinic, which we still have in place, mm. um, which are a combination of HEPA filters and UV um, light. And there we have one in each auditorium and one in the lobby. And those filters get changed out on a weekly basis and are about a hundred dollars each. So um, mm-hmm. that's, you know, 300 bucks a week, just, um, uh, just changing filters. Um, you know, so that adds up to about yeah. 15,000 a year. So you know, yeah, that's, significant yeah. in your mind, as this was happening, did you do any sort of, I mean, I think in all of us in our own ways, we're thinking like, well, this, we had timelines, we had the two weeks at first and then, you know, right. maybe we thought by summer things would go back to normal. Did you have any sort of uh, self bargaining or ways you were thinking about it to yourself of like, well, once we get to this benchmark, then things should go back to normal. Were you doing any of that? Yeah. I mean, we certainly all had those kinds of ideas like, Oh, once a, once um, a vaccine becomes available, then everybody's going to come back to the movies. And once, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we had a vaccine protocol in place for for quite some time and we had a mask mandate in place for quite some time and you know we heard all sides of it we heard you know people who were absolutely gung-ho that we were one of the only places in ohio probably doing you know i know a couple other theaters that had vaccine mandates in place when they Mm -hmm. weren't required um but um, not many. And certainly even the other arts organizations in town started with it and then did away with it within weeks. So we were we were the lone business in the in a, a round that was doing that. And, mm. you know, we got we had so much support from community members. And then we had a lot of hate mail and um, voice messages left, you know, threatening and uh, name calling, et cetera, for, for our protocols. So, you know, kind of hard to take, but at the same time, it felt like the right thing to do, especially when uh, the large part of our customer base are uh, senior citizens and elderly folk who, you know, mm-hmm. really are at, to this day are still scared to come out. So, um, you know, every day we're hearing customers come in and saying it's their first time out in three years um, to a movie theater. Do you have people who come in and say like, oh, when did you guys reopen or how like, oh, Absolutely. how long have you and as, assume that maybe, you know, you've been closed for the last few years or since they Absolutely. people movie. think that, yeah. you know, that we've been clo- that we closed for a couple of years and we have people yeah. come in and they're like, oh, you changed you changed where you know, that like, as I mentioned earlier, that landscape of the trajectory, when you walk in the door and buy your tickets, like, oh, this, we used to go in that door. I'm like, well, you went in that door three years ago. So it's, um, (laughs) you know, yeah, this wasn't a change last week. This was a change in June of 2020. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose it's encouraging in a way that, you know, to get those people that haven't been out for, for three years in the intervening time, it feels like, uh, across the media landscape, there was a, out of necessity, really, just a big move to streaming. It was already happening. Now it feels like there's some trickling news about like, wow, the streaming deals really aren't sustainable and the studios aren't making enough money, you know, for it to be viable and there's cuts happening and content getting, you know, dropped off of platforms. And I'm not asking for, you know, I don't think either of us probably know the ins and outs of what's going on in, in the studio, but um, in the studios. But from your perspective, how do you think about, you know, streaming versus theatrical at this point and, and where that may or may not be headed? Um, well, I, you know, there's certainly a place for both in the world. I, 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 it seems impossible and, that they can be sustaining with the original content that they're, that they're providing. And, you know, and, and I'm reading such as well, they're not getting millions of new subscribers every month, you know? And so it's impossible that, that, that they can sustain that model of creating fresh new content, you know, on a weekly basis for numerous series um, and, and content to, to Mm -hmm. be, you know, to continue staying afloat and relevant. Um, So 
I, you know, I tell people, you know, that people's habits change during the pandemic and they now have so many more streaming services than they ever had. And, in, and, and you have to kind of stop and think about it. And in 2020, maybe you had Netflix, maybe you had Amazon prime criterion channel was just kind of coming out. Um, but there was no Peacock. There was no Paramount plus there was no, um, Apple Dis- TV, Disney, Disney Apple Plus. TV. Yeah. I yeah. mean, all of those things have come out in the last few years. Um, and some of them may have had a glimmer of, you know, being on the horizon before the pandemic, but they, they certainly weren't a household kind of commodity at that time. So people's, um, streaming services probably tripled or quadrupled during the pandemic in the last few years. So it seems impossible that, that they can sustain their models that are, um, you know, ad free, um, mm-hmm. and whatnot, which is what people prefer. If you know, otherwise, why not just watch broadcast television? You know, um, so yeah. um, it seems it seems impossible. A trend that in the box office world that I think uh, maybe is underreported, or you know, thinking the art house scene. And you can correct me if I'm wrong on this. The busiest times of year tend to be around the holidays and then the start of the start of the year leading up to the Oscars. And what happened with pandemic was that also coincided with, you know, when the surges would happen and Omicron. (laughs) Right. So I feel like that was kind of a double uh, blow to the, the uh, particularly art house theaters trying to come back. Now this winter we have thankfully not seen too much of a surge. What, Along those lines, do you have sort of a map uh, or, you know, looking at the calendar, are there sort of like peaks? Um, when when do you tend to have your busiest times and how do you kind of like, how do you set your expectations around like, uh, yeah, business when you look at the months on the calendar? You know, it was changing before COVID, you know, in, in the early, when I took over in 2001, those first several years, um, as you said, it was Oscar season was our bread and butter. Mm-hmm. And the summer was wasn't throwaway, but their art house theaters, art house uh, distributors didn't tend to put their best product out um, in the summer. Mm-hmm. And that started to change with um, off the top of my head. I might have to really look at my numbers and books to to say otherwise. But I feel like Moonrise Kingdom and some like Wes Anderson stuff that started coming out in like the late spring instead of waiting till fall um, started to change those kind of summer months for us. And Mm. I'd say within the last 10 years, we started to see summer as being um, a viable season for us as well. And we'd have, you know, at least a couple films um, in those summer months that did well for us. And, and we were pleased Mm. with, with summer numbers. And it did happen again last year, Uh, you know, our strongest film of, 2022 was everything everywhere all at once, which was, you know, a um, mid-year release. Um, So, so it it was changing before COVID and, but COVID certainly hurt the art house product altogether. And we, you know, Tar would have been a film, I think, that pre-COVID would have played for two months at the theater and um, it barely it barely mm. held for a third week for us. Um, oh, so, yeah. um, you know, films like that. Do you um, think even, that's uh, like the demographic that it's I aimed think the towards? Demographic mm-hmm. It was not really out and supporting, supporting film, especially right at um, the Thanksgiving kind of time. And uh, when they're, when they're getting that message of, you know, stay away from large crowds again and all of that. So I think that that demographic just wasn't out. And certainly we had numerous films that we thought, Oh, if anybody, if there are crowds coming back out, they're going to come out for this. And it was films like uh, Phantom of the open or, you know, those kind of Sony classics titles that are, you know, have a, an NPR kind of demographic behind them. It's like built in with, Mark Rylance or uh, right. Bill Nighy or like any of those kind of actors that we know 
uh, Judy Dench, uh, Maggie oh, Smith. Art House you know, crowd loves Judy Dench. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we know that those are going to be surefire for us, and uh, but they haven't been the last few years. Um, Downton Abbey, the sequel, did pretty well for us, um, mm-hmm. but not not gangbusters. Nothing to you know. It certainly we were happy to have the business that we had with it, but it certainly wasn't uh, monumental like the first film had been. Um, yeah. So it's interesting. Just along those lines, looking at the. Um... I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but looking at the Oscar best picture field this year, it's, you know, you have Avatar and you have Top Gun, which were huge, you know, mainstream hits, but then there's never been an Oscars. There's never been an Oscars with two sequels. um, Oh, wow. For best picture. Yeah. That is interesting. But looking at that field, it seems like everything everywhere all at once is the kind of the outlier in that, it was an art house, you know, it played at art houses it, uh, by through the end of its run. It ended up playing just about everywhere, I guess, too. Mm-hmm. But uh, and it did well. It made I think it made somewhere north of 70 million dollars. Everything else. And you can correct me if, if any of these other movies really hit big uh, for you guys at the Neon. But looking at like the Fablemans. Triangle you know, Sadness, and, like none of them. Triangle yeah. Sadness. Yeah. yeah. Even movies that once seemed like they might be best picture contenders like the whale or Babylon barely, you know, none of those movies made more than 10, $15 million at the box office is yeah. Did well, well, here's maybe a two part question. So did any of those movies perform well for you? Well, um, mm-hmm. sorry, you go ahead. And, oh yeah. Um, and then, and then sort of just getting in our prognostication chair, like if not, yeah, do we attribute that to demographics? Do we think people are staying home to watch them? Or- well, I think yeah. um, distributors also um, are partially at fault. So the Fablemans, uh, Universal wanted that to go mainstream. They wanted a mainstream hit with it. They wanted to push Michelle Williams out and they wanted it to be a Spielberg mainstream hit. They would not let us have it. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. And uh, we fought and we sent so many emails. We over and over and over again said to them, we're the home of the Jewish film festival. We're mm-hmm. the place in town where there's a reverence for cinema. The Fablemen speak to both of those things. Like why can't we yeah. open it? And their whole marketing campaign was everywhere. November. I can't remember November 23rd or November, whatever, right. you know, opening whatever these dates and then everywhere and everywhere meant one theater in town. And that was the, the green, which is the um, multiplex in the suburbs, the wealthier multiplex. Right. Huh. Um, so, and they, they wanted it to be a hit there. And it, yeah. it it wasn't a hit anywhere. Finally, it's, it's a I great film. Say, it is crazy what how that four weeks out. later yeah. they let us open it, and we did better than the Green did. You know when they when they opened it. So you know a month later, our crowd hung around and waited for us to get it. But by then, it had fizzled from what it could have been. I think had they let us have it at that Thanksgiving kind of weekend, we I think we would have done very well with it. Yeah, um, but. Um, they they shot themselves in the foot with that. Yeah, that feels like a, a trend. There's less platforming and like slow rollout of movies theatrically and, these days. And even um, A24, I mean, The Whale, that should have been with us like right yeah. out of the gate, but they gave it to the green as well again. I mean, so so they have these favorites. They have, you know, they work with the chains. They work, they, and- uh, And the chains know, are probably, with, you know- more desperate to get anything they can too. You know, it's, it's a, it's a hungry market to try to show anything that will sell. Absolutely. So they were hoping that Brendan Fraser would, would bring people in for that. Um, And, you know, so they, they're in bed with AMC and Cinemark Mm -hmm. and, um, and they're going to play their favorite. So the Indies, the indie folks like us are, you know, small potatoes, but right. once again, we opened the whale a couple of weeks after it had been at the green and we did better with it than, you know, so, um, so it's, huh. you know, but it's clear that they have their, you know, they're relying on those chains in other markets. So they're making promises in markets where it doesn't make much sense, like, like ours. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's my own, that's my own thought. No one's told me right. um, that that's the case. 
but it yeah. seems when we can prove with the numbers that we inevitably do better with things that, you know, maybe not a film that's got a sequel behind it, um, like Downton Abbey did better at the green than it did um, with us, but everything else, including everything everywhere all at once and other films, if it's an original content kind of art driven or peripheral edgy kind of film, it's going to do better at the neon than it is um, in other venues in our market. I'd like to wrap up by asking our guests, um, what is something that you are looking forward to in the film world? Um, so that could be either, you know, something coming up at the neon or something, you know, just personally that you're looking forward to take it where you will. Well, um, personally I am looking forward to getting back to a festival. So Mm. I've, curate our own Dayton LGBT film festival that never went away during the pandemic, even though we kind of switched strategies during Mm -hmm. the fall of 2020. But I miss going to a festival. So I'm hoping to get to TIFF this year. Um, I used to go every year, would see, you know, 35 plus films over the course of nine days. and, Mm -hmm. um, And I miss that. I miss that engagement with uh, filmmakers and other people in the industry that I would hang out with and see them annually. And so, you know, that hasn't happened since Sundance in 2020. Um, right. That was kind of the last big festival I attended. And of course, you know, the coronavirus was in the news then, but it wasn't stateside really um, an issue. So, you know, weeks later, that would change everything. So, yeah, um, we were in the heyday of Parasite and Yes. gems and all. I don't know. Yeah, it was a really great, the start of 2020, I feel like it was really fun in the movie. It was fun. And Parasite actually was coming back for us because we'd had it and then, you know, brought it back for Oscar season, if right. I remember correctly. So it was a second engagement for Parasite for us. And we, it was encouraging because it was a subtitled film that was doing such gangbuster business. And that's been one thing during the pandemic is people aren't taking risks like they used to um, Mm -hmm. with, with cinema and um, anything subtitled has been a real challenge for us um, these last few years, even like incredible films that you think should like decision to leave and different things that you feel like, Oh, this, if, if anything's going to hit, this this will be the one exactly. And that they just don't, don't do the business that we um, would have anticipated years ago. So I'm hoping that that market comes back um, mm-hmm. and we'll see. We've had some encouraging response to EO this weekend. Okay. Um, we're just doing it once a day, but um, you know, it's nice to see 40 and 50 people per screening of a little Polish film about a donkey. So, um, you know, we'll see. yeah, that's, well, that's a beautiful note to end on. We, uh, if you're looking for uh, another festival in September, Love to have you in Cincinnati. Okay. Um, but yeah, thank you again for uh, for coming on and uh, best wishes. We'll, we'll My see pleasure. you on To everybody out there, if you live anywhere close to Dayton, um, it is well worth the trip. Thank you again for coming on. And, absolutely. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me and helping absolutely. us uh, spread the word about what we do. Yes, absolutely. Take care. Thank you. So. Okay, I'd like to once again thank Jonathan McNeil for coming on. Um, Jonathan told me that when we talked, which was around the time that the Oscars, uh, the Neon was having some of their best business in the three years since the pandemic. So that's great to hear and I'm excited to see movies continue to come back in a big way. The Neon right now is showing the Florence Pugh-Zach Braff film A Good Person, as well as The Lost King, which is a drama directed by Stephen Frears, who also directed Philomena and Dangerous Liaisons. So if you're around Dayton, check them out. I want to thank Independent and the whole team and... Of course, Evan Holt. Uh, 
a nice, interesting time getting into our favorites together. Be fun to compare notes as those films come out over the course of the year. In the weeks ahead, looking forward to continuing to talk to people who are finding ways to pursue their dreams in film. And I want to thank you all for listening and going on this journey with us here. See you in the next episode.